God has been uh, tapping on my heart today just with a, a one-line message, and I think this is where we're headed tonight. But that message is that uh, you're not done yet. You're not through. See, a lot of uh, my life experience over the last 16 months has been tied to this process of building my home. And, you know, even as we were, we were talking months ago about Abraham and his sojourn, and we talked about being sojourners, and I was really feeling that. And my family, we were kind of feeling that, because we didn't have definite roots in any particular home, so we were just here, and then we're there, and we're over there. And so that idea of sojourning, it, it made sense in my life. Well, now we're in the house, and now everything is, is coming together, and the curtains are hung, and we put screens on today, and, and it's starting to just feel like home, where you can just sit down and go, Ugh. And yet in a study, God is saying, clearly I believe, don't settle. Don't stop sojourning. The journey is not over. Not only is it not over for Cheryl and I and the kids in our family life, it is not over for this church. There is so much that God has in store that God has planned, but he does not want the bridge to settle. To say, oh, all right, well this is good. Things are, you know, comfy and, and we're used to things now. And this is the way it's, it should be. God is still drawing us home. And we are not to be settled until we get there. Which means anything that happens between now and then is continual sojourning. Continual living as aliens, as foreigners in this world. This world is not our home. God wants to bring us home. That's His greatest desire. And you'll see that, I believe, tonight in... In the comparison we're going to make, and it's, it's fascinating to me, we've been looking at the high priest. And considering how the high priest is this picture of Jesus, our great high priest. And the writer of the book of Hebrews makes that comparison dramatically and very clearly. He says in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our profession. So we've been considering Jesus as we've looked at the high priest. And we've been looking at his garments, his clothing. Those six to seven items that make up the actual outfit of the high priest. And how each one of those speaks so clearly of Jesus. And we have talked about it. And if you've been keeping notes, you can track along with this. And if you haven't so far, or this is somewhat new to you tonight, let me give you a list quickly that, that you can compare the parts of the high priest's outfit with Jesus. First, the ephod. And we talked long about the ephod. It's that, that covering that comes over the top. It's tied at the shoulders. Again, with those two onyx stones. And the ephod is a picture of the authority of Christ. The ephod in the Bible was always a sign or a picture of authority. So it's a picture of the authority of Christ, our high priest. The breast piece, which is strapped onto the ephod, has those 12 precious stones, each stone being that of a, of a son of Israel. Inscribed on those stones, and the breastpiece is the judgment of Christ. It was called the breastpiece of judgment or the breastpiece breast of decision. For in the breastpiece was the Urim and the Thummim, the revelation of Christ. The Urim and the Thummim, they were used by the high priest to discern what God was answering, what he was saying. People would bring them. We don't know how they work, we're not really sure what, what exactly they did. Or how did they, did they light up the, the precious stones and the breastpiece? Did something mystical happen? We don't know. We don't know. Some have even said they were like dice that they rolled. I, I highly doubt it. But they spoke revelation. The high priest would use the Urim and the Thummim to discern God's will. We, we don't need that anymore because we have Christ. And so it's a picture of the revelation that Christ brings to us. We don't have you know amulets or trinkets or things that we use to understand God's will. We go directly to the Lord Himself. There's another piece, and we brushed by it so fast, we never really tied it to Jesus or talked about how it was a picture of Christ. I want to do that real quickly, and it's the sash. The sash. For this was something else. It's in actually Exodus 28, verse 8, the skillfully woven band, or the curious band, as it's called in other translations shall be like its workmanship, that is of the ephod, it's of the same material, of gold, blue, scarlet, purple, and fine twisted linen. So the same colors as the ephod made up this sash that the high priest girded around his waist and tied off and it held the part of the breastpiece on at the bottom there, this sash. How does the sash speak of Jesus? Well, very quickly, it is the servant nature, the servant nature of Christ. 
As we draw this comparison, we go on over to the New Testament. And when was it that Christ girded himself with a sash of of sorts? And the only example we find is John 13. That passage of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. Sitting there having the Lord's Supper with the apostles. They didn't know it was the Lord's Supper at the time. They thought it was Passover. Jesus was making all things new. And he was transferring it to this new thing, his body, his blood. But on that night, what did he do? John 13 verse 4 tells us he got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus said prior to this in Matthew chapter 20 verse 28 that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. Every single piece of garmentry on the high priest's outfit speaks of Christ. Even the sash. The servant nature of Christ. Well, we talked last Wednesday night and a little bit on Sunday about the robe. That that fifth uh, part of the high priest's garments, the robe. The robe is the picture of the spirit of Christ. Remember the pomegranates and the bells. And how we really focused on the hem of that robe. Pomegranate bell, pomegranate bell, all the way around the robe. Speaking of the spiritual fruit and the spiritual gifts, both that come from the spirit and are in the life, on the heart of a believer. They're how we know we're alive in Christ. How you can tell someone is walking with the Lord. Are they showing the fruit of the Spirit? That love, joy, peace, patience, the whole list. Galatians 5.22 Is someone also expressing the gifts of the Spirit? Or a gift of the Spirit? As the Spirit wills, He gives gifts to each of us for the common good of the body. We look closely at that on Sunday morning as well. So those five items, there are a total of actually seven Seven items altogether that made up what the high priest wore, if you include the Urim and the Thummim altogether. So we're going to look at the next one beginning tonight, but let's start with a moment of prayer and we'll get into it. Father in heaven, illuminate us tonight. Show us things we have yet not yet seen. And help us to see, Lord, not only Christ, but help us to see ourselves tonight in light of Jesus. Help us, Lord, as we not only have a view tonight of the high priest, but of the royal priesthood as well. And I pray, Lord, that you would really capture us tonight. We just sang a few minutes ago, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. I want to touch you. I want to see your face. God, we we sang about pressing on. When we sing about reaching for that final goal, about, about going after you about being, as, as some have written in, in, in our time, God chasers, those who would, who would seek passionately after your spirit and after that definite and true and wonderful relationship with you. God, would you remind us tonight there is nothing that matters like knowing you. Help us to see all things pale in comparison. God, compel us by your love. And Holy Spirit, teach us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 28. We're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 36. Verse 36 of Exodus 28. God is still speaking to Moses. They're still on the mountain. And he's still giving direction and design. And he says the following. He says, you shall also make a plate of pure gold some versions say a mitre or a diadem plate of pure gold and shall engrave on it like the engravings of a seal holy to the Lord you shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban it shall be at the front of the turban it shall be on Aaron's forehead and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate with regard to all their holy gifts and it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord the turban this next item in the garments of the high priest and what he wore the turban it was right there right there on Aaron's head and at the forefront of the turban on the forefront of his mind The mind of the high priest was an inscription. 
on this plate of pure gold. And the inscription read literally, Kodesh Yehovah. Kodesh Yehovah. Holy to the Lord. Sanctified to the Lord. Now the reason given for this diadem of gold that is, that is written on like this is curious. Because God tells Moses it is to bear the iniquity of the sons of Israel. This gold that says holy to the Lord is to bear the iniquity of the sons of Israel. To bear their sin. And that doesn't make sense to me. I think, why, why would that be? Why would this not say the sins of Israel? You know, why not have it be made out of mud or something? You know, but gold, holy to the Lord. How is it that this is supposed to be something that bears their sins? And we need to understand that the high priest, was a, as a picture of Christ, was the atoning mediator for the people of Israel. The atoning mediator, that was his role. His role was to literally take the sins of the sons of Israel, those sins were placed on the high priest. The high priest would then place those sins, and you're going to see this graphically in a few minutes tonight, he would place those sins on an animal of sacrifice. And that animal would be sacrificed and killed for the sins. The sins would pass then from the Israelites to the high priest to the animal and on out in death. That was the role of the high priest. The atoning mediator who took the sins of Israel to exterminate them by bearing them on himself before the Lord. Sin was transferred from the people to the high priest to the sacrificial beast be it a ram or a lamb to produce righteousness. Now you might say this turban sounds a little heady. And I would say exactly. There was a pun there. Just let it go. You know, you wouldn't say it's heady? Okay. Front row. The turban gang is a picture of the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. On the forefront of the high priest's mind was one thing, the holiness of the people. That his job was about making the people holy. That was his role. And that's the role of Jesus. If you were to say, Jesus, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? Your holiness. Your righteousness. Your cleanliness, your sanctification before the Lord, it's on the forefront of his mind. As the Bible tells us in Hebrews 7 that he always lives to make intercession for us. He is continually looking out for us. He is the atoning mediator for us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 6 tells us there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. What's on Jesus' mind? Holiness. Not His holiness. He has that. But your holiness. My holiness. What concerns Jesus? Helping me clean up my act. Actually, cleaning up my act because I am incapable of it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Paul writes, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And many of us have heard that verse before, but Paul goes on. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. And where does this sound judgment come from? It comes from the turban. From the mind of Christ. What do you mean? As we go through life and we have to make difficult decisions, we have to discern what the will of the Lord is, we have a precious gift. We have an amazing thing. Paul describes it this way. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He goes on, he says, But he who is spiritual appraises all things, discerns all things, considers all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And Paul says this, and this should knock us back a bit. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have discernment right with us. Who's going to instruct me? Who's going to give me knowledge? Who brings me wisdom so that I can understand where I'm supposed to go? What I'm supposed to do? How I'm supposed to handle any given situation? Jesus does. Because as His child, redeemed by His blood, saved by Him, bearing His Holy Spirit in my very life, 
I have the mind of Christ. And I wonder sometimes if as Christians we run from that. We run quickly to other people or to good books, to self-help or to TV helpers. And we don't stop to think, wait, I have the mind of Christ. Ask Him. That's one of my favorite examples is from the, uh, the movie A Wonderful Life. You know, where a little uh, George Bailey goes running in and, and he, he, he's got a crisis. It's when he's a kid. And he doesn't know what to do. And he looks up on the wall and there's a big sign, Ask Dad, He Knows. We have the mind of Christ. And when you don't know what to do, stop and ask Jesus. He knows. We have been given the mind of Christ. That turban is a picture of it. Growing in holiness. We have the mind of Christ. It requires the mind of Christ. Because again, through and by Jesus' mind, it's how we learn to discern what is right and good and true and holy. That's what Paul means by spiritually appraising all things. It's discernment. It's asking, Jesus, show me. And then it's looking for Him to show you. It's waiting to see what is His will. And I'm finding in my life, the more I ask and then wait the more I know. Not the more knowledge I have, but the more I know what His will is. If I will ask the Lord, truly seek Him out, and then wait for and watch for a response, it comes. It truly comes. Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up and they tested Jesus and they asked Him to show them a sign from heaven But he replied to them, When it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? He goes on and says, An an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. A sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. What are you saying, Jesus? Are you telling us, should we look for signs or not? Should we be aware of things or not? He's saying, hey, in this generation, not this one, but the generation that he was in at that time, he's saying this is an evil and adulterous generation. They're looking for a sign. And they're missing all the signs. By this point in Jesus' ministry, do you realize how many miracles he had performed? How many signs and wonders had been done by the hand of Christ? And yet the Pharisees say, we need a sign. And Jesus says, that's it. In fact, from this point on in his ministry, Jesus will perform no more signs but one. He will resurrect from the dead. That's the sign that they needed. That's the sign that they missed. But following his crucifixion and his resurrection, something wonderful happens for those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you receive the mind of Christ and the ability to discern. The opportunity to talk to the Father, ask him, and then watch and wait for his response. You have received the mind of Christ and that is a wonderful thought. How much peace is there just in that concept alone? I don't have to discern on my own. I don't have to measure or appraise things without help. I have the mind of Christ. Phil came back just for a couple days this week. He's, he's headed back to Costa Rica now. But he came over yesterday and we sat talking on my couch for like an hour and a half just, just talking about things and I was asking about how he's doing without Jane. And he said, you know, the hardest part, the hardest part is when I have to make tough decisions. Because I'm so used to going, Jane, what do you, Jane, how about, Jane, and she's not there. That's the hard part. That's when the tears come to my eyes, he said. When I need to make a difficult decision, when it's about our son or our kids, and I'm not sure what to do, and I turn thinking I'll ask Jane, we'll discuss it together. But you know what was wonderful is Phil said, I'm learning now to allow God to fill that place. To allow Him to be the one I turn to. Instead of, I'm not sure what to do. Jane, what do you think? It's now Jesus. What should we do here? Lord, I'm in a bind. Father, I'm in a quandary. I don't know what I'm to do. Help me work this out. Learning to discern with the mind of Christ. And this is not hocus pocus. It's not mumbo jumbo. It's not some vague spiritualizing game. It is truth and it is real. And I'm telling you, from my short experience in really pursuing the Lord, it works. He does answer. I'll give you one quick example. 
Cheryl and I have been really struggling with what to do with Corey. Whether to let him live at home or just kick him out. No. We're, we're trying to decide what the best thing is for him this next year. He's down in Oak Harbor Christian School right now. He, he, the choice is going into ninth grade. Can we send him to Oak Harbor High School? We had another option of, of having him stay home and go to this Morning Star Christian Academy, an online Christian school, which would be really cool. Lots of Bible, lots of teaching there. And yet there's this, there's this other option, Oak Harbor High School. And should he be there? As Jim and I have talked about, should he go down there and attempt to be a light? Or should we keep him home and try and, and, and shore up his lightness for a little while longer before... And we've been really struggling with this and praying about it. And I hope it's okay if I share this because I share everything. It's out there now. But we've been talking and praying about it for a couple of months and literally swinging the pendulum from one end to the other, back and forth. And we've come to the point where it's just it's too hard a decision to make just on our own. So we've been asking the Lord and really praying, Father, what do you want this morning? Well, I know, but you asked him from the beginning. I just started today. Cheryl's been very spiritual the whole way through. Okay, let's be clear. No, we've been praying about it, but it, but I, it just struck me this morning, thinking about the mind of Christ. Yeah, ask Dad. He knows. So I dropped the kids off at school, and I'm driving back home. And I'm going, Lord... I don't want to be like an evil and adulterous situation or, or generation, but I, I need a sign. I, I need to see some, I need you to do something here. Can you do something to give us some assurance about what decision is best? Now, I started thinking about this, but I've got to back up just a second here. And you know what? If we run long, we run long. Okay? Or, or I'll just stop. And we'll, this is important. Yesterday, while I was studying, there's a verse that we'll read tonight in a few minutes, and it's John 17. And I'm reading through John 17, studying for tonight's Bible study, and I literally was not thinking about Corey at all. Not even thinking about him. We had actually kind of settled on the homeschool academy thing, and so, we're kind of, and so I wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about the study and trying to put it together and figure out what he's saying, Lord. And, and I'm reading John 17, and it comes to a point where Jesus is saying, you know, the world has hated them because it hated me first. And then he says... And I don't ask you to take them out of the world. All I ask is that you protect them from the evil one. And I read that verse, and I, I'm, I kid you not, all of a sudden it was like, Corey. I mean, it was like God said, this is about Corey. And I just I stopped dead in my tracks. Corey? And from that point on, Bible study was just shot. I couldn't think about anything else but this school issue. Now I'm starting to pray about it more. Wait a minute, I thought we made this. What are you talking about, Lord? What are you saying? And then so this morning again, I'm driving back and dropping the kids off at school. And as I'm driving along, I'm thinking, Lord, I, I just, I think that that verse stuck out so powerfully. And I think that Corey's name and face entered my mind so immediately because this is what you're trying to tell me here. Don't take him out of the world. Just protect him from the evil one. And so as I thought about this, I said, Lord, I need, I need more. Can you shore this up? Can you do something to convince me that this is of you. Cheryl and I had a, a meeting. We, I got home, picked her up. We had a meeting back down in Oak Harbor to meet with the people that the homeschool connection or the home connection is what they're called. And it's the guy whose job it is to kind of work with families who are homeschooling and everything else. So we were going down. It was already set up to meet with them and talk with them. We went down there. We got there and the, the interview was all messed up. They thought we were coming at 9. We had 9.30 written down. He was already off to another thing so we couldn't meet with him this morning. And so we walk out of there and I kind of go, no, that's, 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 not, that's not big enough. I need more. <laughs> okay. So Cheryl said, what do, you, what do you say we go over to Oak Harbor High School and just, she goes, have you even been inside Oak Harbor High School yet? I said, no, I haven't, so let's go over there. So we drove over there, just on a wind park in the parking lot, walk inside, go into the office, and we're trying to check and see about Corey. We went ahead and registered him before anyway. And I'm looking around, and I'm trying to feel something. And we walk out into the hallway, and here comes Jim. Now, it just so happens he is right on his prep period and has half hour, 45 minutes to pick his nose. I mean, he's doing nothing. <laughs> he's walking down the hall, just, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, Jim, he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, we, you know, and I, I kind of told him, and so he took us on a tour of the school. Needless to say, at the same time that I, I ran into Jim, this other interview didn't work out, and a kid we, we ended up talking to who was homeschooled for her whole life, but now is at Oak Harbor High School, so I'm asking her questions, and it's just all kind of coming together. Now, 
The spiritually discerning mind, the mind, as Paul says, who appraises all things in terms of God's will, would look at all of this and say, there's a picture being drawn for me here that is very clear and very obvious. Now, I get excited about this kind of thing because as recently as a couple of years ago, I would have missed the whole thing. I wouldn't have had a clue. But because we're so in the Word and because we're seeking after the Spirit, I'm just on a constant basis going, Lord, is it you? If it's you, show me it's you. Now, Jim doesn't look exactly like Jesus. But there was something about running into him in that moment and the sense that my Christian brother's here. I can send my son somewhere where I've got a Christian brother. I can send my son somewhere where I know there are other lights. And as Jim has already said, we need light. And so uh, we decided to homeschool. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so we're at that point where we're saying we believe this is what, what the Lord wants. It's a hard decision because, you know, as you're, if you're a parent, you know, you, man, you just want to protect. But as we talked to Corey today, it's not time for protection right now. It's, it's time that he be out there and test his faith. It's time that he live it out and, and walk it out. So anyway, all that to say the mind of Christ, we all have it, folks. It's not a Pastor Rick thing. It's not an individual. Every single one of us, if you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ, able to spiritually appraise and discern things in life. So do it. I, when I was younger, I didn't because I was afraid it didn't work. What if I tried it and it didn't work? What if I asked God for a sign and then, you know, four weeks later, no sign? Well, spiritually appraising mind, you're going to see. You will know what God is calling you to. Look at verse 39. Going on, the turban, the turban is the sixth item, it's the mind of Christ, and now he goes on and says, you shall weave the tunic, the tunic, that's the seventh item, weave the tunic of checkered work of fine linen, and make a turban of fine linen, and you shall make a sash, the work of the weaver, we talked about the sash and the turban, but now the tunic, and it completes the high priestly portrait of Christ. How so? Because the linen tunic, that, that linen, we've talked about before, it's a picture of righteousness. Linen portrays or portends to righteousness in the scriptures. There are many verses. Just do a word search. If you're not sure about this, do a word search of linen and see where it pops up. It's a picture of righteousness and the tunic is a picture of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our high priest. We've already seen this throughout Scripture. But now, I want to move on. I want to transition away from the high priest. You have these seven items that make up his garments, his outfit. But it's fascinating now to see what happens when God says, okay, there's the high priest. Now, let's talk about the rest of the priesthood. Because remember, in Israel, there's an entire priesthood. All of the Levites were the priests. One high priest surrounded by a priesthood, a gathering of other priests. Verse 40, reading on, says, For Aaron's sons... You shall make tunics, and you shall also make sashes for them, and make caps for them, for glory and for beauty. You shall put them on Aaron your brother, and on his sons with him, and you shall anoint them, and ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall make for them linen breeches to cover their bare flesh, and they shall reach from the loin even to the thighs. They shall be on Aaron and on his sons when they enter the tent of meeting or when they approach the altar to minister in the holy place so that they do not incur guilt and die. It shall be a statute forever to him and to his descendants after him. It's interesting to me. You've got this high priest who wears the ephod and the breastpiece and the robe and the sash. He wears the turban and the tunic. But the rest of the priests wore one item. A linen tunic. That was it. Well, and a linen cap. And a linen sash and linen underwear. That was it. (laughs) Basically, that was the whole thing. But it was all one thing. It was all linen. You don't see the purple and the scarlet and the blue. You don't see the gold woven in anywhere. For the rest of the priests, it was just fine linen. And it completes the perfect picture here. Not just of the high priest, not just of Christ, not just of Israel, but of the kingdom of priests. That is the body of Christ, the church. For now, as we step away from the high priest and we look at the priesthood itself, all of these priests wearing fine linen, this is what the church wears. This is a picture of the church. Christ's body. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 5, Peter said, Coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, 
You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9 he goes on and says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. By the way, he's quoting the Lord in Exodus. If you look back, it's Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, where God says, You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, and then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And this is what Peter is drawing off of. Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Yeah, there was a priesthood, the Levites, and they were in Israel, but now, but now, all of those who are in Christ are the royal priesthood. It's you. It's me. Wearing the linen. What Revelation calls the righteous acts of the saints. Linen. The picture of the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Peter says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But what does that really mean? I'm a royal priesthood. I mean, honestly, look around. This is the priesthood? This is the best that we've got here, right here? And you look pretty good. I mean, Spence, you look nice tonight. And some of you are dressed pretty well. But this is the priesthood? Come on, Lord, are you serious? I want you to understand something tonight. And this is so critical. And, and again, this is just one of those bang-me-over-the-head things this week. This whole idea of a royal priesthood is not just a nice metaphor for church people. Do you understand that this is not just about, oh, let's call him a royal priesthood. Peter can put that in the verse and it'll sound good and people will really go, yeah, I'm a royal priesthood. Hand me my frock. You know, I'm a royal priesthood. Where's my linen garment? It's not just about how it makes us feel as Christians. It is an actual designation with actual consequence. With tangible results to it. I want you to jot two things down about this royal priesthood. Two things to remember and to understand. The first is that in Christ I have entered into priestly training. I have entered into priestly training. Part of the reason you're still here and you haven't just been caught up. You've ever asked this question before, Lord, why do I stay here once I become a Christian? Why did you leave me here? He didn't have to. And with some he doesn't, by the way. There are those who give their lives to Christ and they're taken very quickly. Why do I have to hang out all these years and continue on and on and be here? Why not just, man, I accept Christ and boom, I'm done and that's it and I'm with Him. Because I am in priestly training. Priestly training. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, once again, he says, You also as living stones, listen to this word, listen to this phrase, you are being built up. As a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. He doesn't say you are there. He doesn't say, hey man, you come into Christ, you've arrived. You are a priesthood. He says you are being built up into a priesthood. You are being developed. You have now entered the process, praise the Lord, of priestly training. That's what this life is about. At the same time, along the way, we are evangelizing the world. The Holy Spirit is through us. He's doing amazing things. He's touching and changing lives. But gain for each one of us individually, our primary role is on-the-job priestly training. That's what this life is for. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what we're about. On-the-job training for a royal priesthood. You're in process. I'm a work in progress, which is an awfully comforting thought. Slowly but surely, Paul says, we're being transformed from glory, that is the glory of Christ, to glory. That is, the glorified people that we one day will be. Priestly training. That's the first thing to jot down. In Christ I have entered into priestly training. But second is, with Christ I will enter into priestly reigning. This is not a metaphor. Again, and I know we talk about how literal scripture is oftentimes. And we say, you know, it is what it is, and what it says, that's what it means, and we go through there. But we still have a tendency as human beings to spiritualize things into kind of a, you know, what Phil calls the movie version. We kind of take what God has written down and we go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the priesthood. No, you're not. Well, you kind of are. You're on the job training for actual reigning. You will function, hear me on this, you will function one day as a priest for the Lord. 
this is not just church talk. I am being trained for a job. And how I live my life right now, gang, I've been saved, so we're not talking about my salvation. How I live my life right now goes to my priestly training. I want to be a good one. I want to be a good priest. I really do. I want to, when I get up there, I want to have some idea of what I'm supposed to do. I don't want to be one of the priests who, who, who gets assigned to a place and I'm going, what do I do? Priestly training for priestly reigning. Well, okay, what are you talking about, Rick? Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. John writes that he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. But where will this take place, this, this priesthood? If I'm actually supposed to enter into a priesthood, where does it take place? Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. Listen very carefully to the words. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. Where, Lord? And they will reign upon the earth. Now some at that point would say, oh, okay, well that's what we're doing right now. Right? We're reigning upon the earth. Really? How well is the church in America doing right now? How well is the church doing in the world right now? Are we reigning right now? Is this it? I mean, are you serious? You're trying to tell me right now that we are reigning on the earth. No, we are not. This is not the reigning talked about in Scripture. Do you need a dime or something? (laughs) (laughs) So what are we talking about here? When will this take place, this reigning upon the earth? Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Okay, so I see what you're doing, Rick. You're picking these verses one by one. You're just kind of picking them out of Revelation to make them say what you want. No, I'm not. Just read the book on your own. Check it out. And again, if you've been at the bridge for any length of time, you know I've been over this and over this and over this. And I will continue to be over it and over it and over it. Why? Why do you keep bringing this up? I'll tell you in a minute. But listen, there is coming a day, according to Scripture, there is coming a day explicit in the Bible when the saints, when the church, will come out of our training and into our priestly reigning with Christ. We will return to the earth to reign as priests in his kingdom. Now maybe that sounds weird. I don't know what tradition you come from when you approach scripture or what your your church background is like. Just letting the simple, literal words of scripture speak for themselves. There is coming that day. Listen to this. Jude verse 14 tells us that Enoch, Enoch, do you remember Enoch? He was the one in Genesis who was walking with God and then God just took him. What a cool guy Enoch must have been. Talk about being connected to the Lord, having a walk with Jesus one day. They're just walking along, enjoying company and fellowship, and God says, man, this is so good. Why don't you come on home with me tonight? This is great. So they just kept going. That's right. Yeah, we'll eat at my house. By the way, you're not coming back. That's cool. And so off Enoch goes. Well, Enoch was a prophet. Well, we didn't know that until Jude wrote his letter. He says that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord... The Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. That word holy ones is the Greek word hagias. Not what you might think, angelos, angels. It's hagias, holy ones, saints. It is never applied in Scripture to angels. It is always and only applied to believers in Christ. The hagias. It's you and I. Jude said that Enoch prophesied that the Lord came. Enoch had this picture of the Lord coming back to earth, returning with many thousands of his saints, his holy ones. Interesting. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 13. Paul's writing and he talks about the fact that God will establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his agios, with all his saints, with all his holy ones. When Jesus comes back, he is coming back with the saints. Not for the saints, not to the saints, but with the saints. Again, just what is Scripture saying? Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. I love this one. Jesus is talking about the end times and He says immediately, After the tribulation, 
What's the tribulation? It's that seven year period of time. Talked about Revelation 6 through 19. After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And He will send forth His angels. He will send forth His angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together His elect, listen to this, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. You catch that? The angels don't come down when Jesus comes down and gather the elect from the four corners of the earth. Jesus says very clearly, from the four winds, from the four corners of the sky. What are we doing in the sky? Well, we've already been there for a bit. We're coming with Him. According to the clear, plain meaning of Scripture, without twisting it, without allegorizing it, or changing the text, the priesthood of believers is a real thing. It is a now experience as priests in training. It is a then experience as priests who will be with Jesus reigning. Training and then reigning. And isn't it interesting that the priests wore linen? That that was what they were dressed in as they ministered to the Lord for Israel. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? Who's the bride? The church. His bride has made herself ready. It was given her to clothe herself in fine linen. Bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The picture bears itself out all the way across time. The high priest. Jesus. The high priest is, is robed in beauty and, and, and splendor. He's got the turban. He's got that, that sign of holiness on the forehead. The gold. He's got the glittering gems on his breastpiece. The rest of the priests surrounding the high priest, like the church, simply dressed in linen and ready to serve. I know I keep coming back to this stuff. I understand. I talk about it a lot. Why is it all so important to know? I can't think of anything more practical to everyday living than knowing where I'm going. If I am focused on that end point, then how I live this moment of today matters. If it doesn't matter but some vague thing out there, then ah, i got time to kill. It doesn't matter. Who cares? I'm just going to float. I'll get back to the church thing after a while. I'll, I'll open my Bible eventually. I'll do it, but right now it doesn't matter. But if I'm focused on that end point, and I understand, as Jesus said, it could be at any time, man, I'm in training. Unlike the Olympic athlete who knows the date of the games. I know when that's coming and when I have to be ready. And so I am training. I'm working out. Again, not to save myself. That's done. But to prepare for that priestly reigning that is promised to come. And there's a word for that, by the way, that priestly training. that's sanctification. God wants to sanctify and prepare and develop and train us for that day when he will return and we will come with him I love this uh, kid's t-shirt a guy named Kevin freshman in my youth group when I was in California when I first arrived there he's a football player and a really good one and man Kevin worked hard he also never missed when the doors were open at the church he had an understanding with his coach the understanding was coach when there's church stuff I'm there and the rest of the time I'm at football and he had this t-shirt, this old gnarled, ripped t-shirt, and he used to come after practice, and he'd sit down in Bible study, and the kids would kind of, you know, make room for him because it just kind of didn't smell too great. But his t-shirt said, go hard or go home. I was like, yeah, right on. That's the attitude of a priest in training. I am going to go hard, and then I'm going to go home. I am working at it. I'm not working to save myself. I am working to be ready for that day when he calls my name to priestly reign with him. It was so important to Jesus. The whole idea of the priesthood, of sanctifying the believers, of us being ready and prepared to go forward with him. So important that literally on the night that he was betrayed, he prayed a prayer and it's the longest prayer we have recorded by Jesus in scripture. And in that prayer he says, John 17 verse 13, Father, I, I come to you. 
And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, sanctify them, Jesus prayed. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but listen to this. Listen, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but I ask for those who believe in me through their Word. And in a stunning moment, on this night of his betrayal, and Jesus knew he was headed to the cross, within hours he was going to be a bloody, broken mess hung up on a cross, and yet he had the presence of mind to pray for you and to pray for me. I'm not just praying, Father, for my apostles, I'm praying for those people who will believe in me because of what they say. Because of what they write. Because of their word. That's me. I believe in Jesus because of the word of the apostles. Because of what Paul wrote and Peter wrote and what John wrote. I read the words. I'm overwhelmed. The Spirit comes on me. I am following Jesus. I am who He was praying for. And so are you. So important was our sanctification. Fellow priests in training. That Jesus prayed for you on the very night of His betrayal. And I'm not going to go on to chapter 29 tonight. I'm going to stop right there. This is so important that we need to to focus on it this week. I've got the notes. We can go ahead and do chapter 29 right now. (laughs) I want you to, to stew on this a bit and consider it and think about it and pour over it. We have to get away from the spiritualization of the scriptures. And we need to step into the reality of what they say. This is not a game. This is not some kind of pageant. This is not some show, some, some video, some movie. This is reality. And when Jesus says, you're going to reign and rule with me for a thousand years right here, he means it. Now I may have some church background that I've got to work through to understand how that exactly works and what exactly it means. And if you're not sure about this stuff, again, spend some time in the book. Look at it. Test it for yourselves. Ask the right questions. Ask the wrong questions. No questions the wrong ones. Just keep asking. But God is preparing us right now for a priesthood then. And then could be tomorrow. Then could be a month from now. They could be in several years. It's whenever God decides and He knows when that time is right. But until then, as a saved, sanctified person in Christ, I am in training. That's why my son is going to Oak Harbor High School. That's why we're sending Corey. Because the -the on-the-job, tougher training that he will get there far surpasses the training that he will get at home all protected and safe. I was talking to Cheryl today. He's 15 in a month. Unbelievable. It's not so unbelievable to look at me and think I've got a 15-year-old, but when you look at Cheryl, you go, no way. It's not possible. Nice. Good job. I wasn't. I'll get a piece of pie out of it later or something. But we're here to train, to be ready, and nothing matters like that. Nothing comes close to it. And it's my heart and it's my prayer that growing not out of Sunday mornings but out of Wednesday night will be this sense at the bridge of a people in training. Of a people who are so excited, so jazzed, so turned on by Jesus and by living out life for Him that others are just looking going, Man, you just are so into this Jesus stuff. Yeah, I'm in training. Because I am going to rule and reign with Him at some point, someday. Personally, I'm claiming the island of Kauai. (laughs) But folks, that's what we're driving to. And it's going to be marvelous. 
And we just need to give the rest of our time to God. Father in heaven, Jesus, our great high priest, we gather around you right now. Considering your awesome splendor. Your beauty and your glory, Jesus. How you shine among us with brilliance and perfection. And we are drawn to that, Lord. Not to wear what you wear, certainly not to bear the authority that you bear, but to sit under your authority as secure children would sit at the feet of their father. But we gather around you, Lord, to be raised up and sanctified and consecrated and ordained as your priests. And none of this to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. None of this to puff up or or have these attitudes like we're going to be something great. Because we recognize that to be a priest, to rule and to reign in your kingdom means to serve. It means to humble ourselves. It means to be at the beck and call of the needs of others. To put our love and our affection into other people. And we desire so much to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, as Paul wrote, to be conformed to the image of your Son, Father. To be dressed in these robes of righteousness and purified and cleansed washed clean by Jesus. Father, as far as I can see, there's only two ways to do it. Your Word and Your Spirit. And I pray that Your Word would wash us and Your Spirit would flood our lives. That we would be so tapped into who You are and so focused on Your return that when it's time to actually enter that priesthood, to come off the training and onto the job, that we would be ready, complete in Christ Jesus, as You have promised to make us. And Father, do whatever it takes. If that means putting us in a tough place, if that means putting us in a dark place, if that means making us go through hard times and struggle, for such a short amount of time as this life is compared to eternity, Lord, we ask you will do what you need to do to work it out in us. And we love you. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would be the one who applies it to our hearts and our lives. As we lift up ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.